If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 10 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part one of a two-part story. Listener caution is advised as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. From a very early age, identical twins Jennifer and June Gibbons were insular. They created their own secret language and refused to talk to anyone else. Following a conviction for burglary and arson during their late teens, they were both sent to Broadmoor Psychiatric Hospital. This selective muteness would leave them trapped in the secure facility on a cocktail of antipsychotic medication for 11 years. But when they heard they were being released, they both reached an agreement that one twin should lead a normal life. Tragically, their decision would have fatal consequences. Jennifer and June Gibbons were born on the morning of April 11th, 1963 at an RAF hospital in Yemen 
located in Western Asia, where their father was stationed. June Allison Gibbons arrived first, and Jennifer Lorraine Gibbons was born 10 minutes later. Their mother and father, Aubrey and Gloria, now had two siblings for their seven-year-old daughter Greta and four-year-old son David. After the birth of the twins, their mother and father, who met and married in Barbados, relocated to Linton-on-Ouse in North Yorkshire. Gloria was raised in Barbados by a father who was strict and ambitious. He specifically wanted his daughter to become a teacher, but Gloria showed no interest in her education. She failed her exams, but not long after began courses in bookkeeping and touch typing. With this training, she easily found employment, and at 24 years old, she was working as a telephonist at Sewell Airport in St. Philip. It was here she met Aubrey Gibbons. Aubrey was a pleasant, charming and hard-working man, four years younger than Gloria, who worked as a meteorological assistant at the airport. Aubrey was the eldest of six children. He was well-educated and able to speak Greek, Latin and English. During his teenage years, while Aubrey was away from his family finishing his studies, two of his siblings suddenly died. This was closely followed by the loss of his mother, who was pregnant with the seventh child at the time. Aubrey was devastated and felt like he needed a new start, so he found a job at Sewell Airport, and it was here he met Gloria. The couple married on December 8, 1955. Their first child, Greta, was born, and their son David followed three years later. While Aubrey's employment at the airport was stable, he felt there was no room for progression and he wanted to further provide for his growing family. They decided to move from the Caribbean and emigrate to England in search of better opportunities within the Royal Air Force. Aubrey left without his family at first, hoping to settle down and obtain a job before they committed to the move. After he arrived in early 1960, Aubrey wasted no time and undertook the Royal Air Force's aptitude test. He passed and Gloria and the children joined him six months later. A few years on, the twins were born and Gloria's hands were full, looking after two young children and two newborns on her own as Aubrey was often away. Working for the RAF meant the family frequently moved, which made it difficult for the children to form relationships, so inevitably they turned to each other. The twins were late to talk and very shy. Teachers would often remark that although they could read well, they were both very reluctant to speak. This didn't worry Gloria, as in every other way the twins seemed healthy and happy, believing they would communicate in their own time. Aubrey and Gloria had another child, Rosie, in 1968, and the family relocated to Devon in 1971. More upheaval followed with a move to Haverford West, a town in Pembrokeshire in 1974. In Haverford West, Aubrey was employed as an assistant air traffic controller at RAF Broadie. The family was close and the children were well behaved. The only thing that set them apart in a small village in the 1970s is that they were black. June and Jennifer would spend an inordinate amount of time together and being the only black children in Haverford West County Secondary School, they would often be the subject of racist abuse from the other children. This was something the girls had already experienced during their time in Devon. They were taunted about the colour of their skin and were often the subject of physical assaults by other students. Outside of school, the girls would often spend time in their bedroom. 
June and Jennifer would play with their dolls and listen to pop music on the radio. As the twins were spending so much time together, they were communicating less with the rest of their family. June and Jennifer began to speak at high speeds, which made it very difficult for others to understand them. Their father grew concerned his twin daughters were only communicating with each other, and although he was informed by a teacher, they would grow out of their shyness. This didn't alleviate his concerns. Sadly, the bullying and abuse the twins suffered at school was becoming highly traumatic and more frequent, so administrators allowed them to leave five minutes early each day to save them from the shouts and taunts they would often endure. The isolation they felt made the girls more withdrawn, and soon they were only communicating with each other, save for their sister Rosie, in a language that was unintelligible. Although this secret language started off as a game, it was becoming harder and harder for the girls to break out of this cycle of limited communication. Teachers at their local school remarked that hardly anyone saw them talk, and when they did, they couldn't understand them. They barely ate and were always together. The teachers were now getting concerned and reported this back to their mother Gloria, however she merely replied they were just a little shy. The twins would shut themselves away in their bedroom, not coming down for meals and even when they did they would barely acknowledge their family. Their unique form of communication, or lack of it to others, wasn't the only noticeable quirk the twins had. June and Jennifer would mimic each other's actions and their father's frustration grew. While maintaining a closeness, most twins were able to find their individuality, but it would seem June and Jennifer didn't try to find theirs. After Aubrey and Gloria consulted with their local doctor, they were told that the two girls might be tongue-tied due to a congenial disorder where tissue from the base of the mouth to the tongue had overgrown. The idea of a corrective procedure was a relief to June and Jennifer's parents, as at least this might prove they had difficulty talking due to a physical problem, rather than a case of elective muteness. The girls were referred to the surgical outpatients department at Withybush General Hospital in May 1976, though after discussion with the school medical officer, Dr. John Rees, he explained that as the two girls had breastfed without any problems, he believed a congenital disorder wasn't likely the cause. Deflated, Aubrey and Gloria were referred to a child psychiatrist. The psychiatrist attempted to engage the girls in conversation, however after a frustrating few hours he had no luck, so the twins were referred to a speech therapist towards the end of the year. In February 1977, their speech therapy began, however after only a month, an operation was agreed between Aubrey and Gloria to remove what was believed to be excess tissue from the twins' mouths much to the dismay of their psychiatrist and speech therapist. The surgeon Peter Wilson felt this would help, and their parents agreed. The operation was completed, though no improvement was seen in the girls' communication. As the procedure was painful, and the girls begrudged having to undergo it, this likely didn't help improve relations with doctors or their parents. Antrian, a leading specialist in elective muteness who worked at Withybush General Hospital, believed that the operation they underwent wasn't necessary, though thought Jennifer had some form of control over June. The specialist attempted to treat the girls using a tape recorder when she was out of the room, however all she captured was a set of grunts. 
Finally, it was agreed that girls could be transferred from their secondary school to the Eastgate Centre for Special Education. Located around 10 miles away in Pembroke, the girls started in April 1977 and at first spoke to no one. Kathleen Arthur, who was the twins' teacher, managed to eke out the odd word from Jennifer and progress was being made, albeit slowly. However, after another teacher recorded some questions for the girls to answer on a tape recorder, a breakthrough came. Although they didn't directly answer the questions, both girls were heard saying in a clear voice, what can we say? A long pause was followed by, God knows, God knows. The recording then ended. This highlighted that the twins were able to speak clearly and had little or no speech impediments. Kathleen Arthur encouraged the twins to carry out a number of activities and exercises, including horse riding. The downside was that if an instructor didn't show signs of encouragement or voice some form of criticism, the twins would become catatonic and each fall off their horse. Throughout the summer of that year, assessments were carried out on both June and Jennifer. The tests gave inconsistent results, with some stating that they were well-adjusted and others highlighted they were socially inept. Kathleen discovered that the twins played happily with their little sister Rosie when no one was watching, so using a one-way mirror put them in a room with a young girl to gauge their response. As she thought, the twins started to play with the little girl, though when Kathleen entered the room, the sisters would again fall silent. Kathleen managed to record them talking and realised that when they were communicating, this new language was strikingly similar to the sound of a birdsong. Unfortunately, although inroads were being made by Kathleen, the rest of the staff at Eastgate felt that the twins should be split up. They found them uncomfortable to be around, and some staff believed there might be something supernatural about the twins. In March 1978, June and Jennifer were informed they were to be split up, and they were given a choice as to who stays at Eastgate and who was moved to another residential unit. During the meeting, the two girls simply looked at each other, and suddenly Jennifer shrieked and lunged at her sister, digging her nails into June's face. June retaliated by tearing a chunk of Jennifer's hair out. As the two fought, a member of staff had to pull them apart. The girls couldn't live together, but they almost certainly couldn't live apart either. The staff at Eastgate began getting phone calls from Jennifer and June begging them not to be split up. This was the first time they had shown any form of proactive attempts to make contact with other people. On the phone, they said, we promise to talk if we can both stay at Eastgate. Their pleas were ignored and June was taken to St David's Adolescent Unit in Carmarthen while Jennifer remained at Eastgate. During their time apart, things went from bad to worse. June would sit motionless as tears slowly flowed down her cheeks. Despite the countless tears, she didn't make a single sound and things weren't much different for her sister either. It wasn't until they were allowed to start communicating again via the telephone they would suddenly become animated. The two girls would shriek and giggle on the phone in a language only they could understand. The twins' condition worsened with each passing day and finally it was agreed to reunite them in May 1978. Despite attempts by Kathleen Arthur to try and help the girls in their separate facilities, this produced little or no results. The twins would be defiant of any authority and would barely communicate. The only option, it seemed, was to reunite them. When the twins were finally reunited, 
they would stay in their room playing with their dolls. Eastgate had done all it could to help the twins, and by the end of the term, in the summer of 1979, the headmaster sent their parents a letter explaining that the school could no longer support them. He also included information on how the girls could claim unemployment benefit. Aubrey and Gloria were at a loss of what to do. If they needed to communicate with their parents, they would leave barely legible notes downstairs when no one was around. These notes included instructions on when the girls wanted their breakfast, lunch and dinner. Gloria was unsure of how to deal with them, so would follow their instructions, leaving food outside their bedroom door. If the girls wanted to watch something on television, they would leave instructions for their parents, explaining what they wanted to watch and ask that the living room door be left ajar. The girls would then sit on the stairs watching the television through the doorway. If a member of the family unexpectedly entered the hallway, the girls would disappear back up to their rooms. If June and Jennifer needed to visit the town centre, they would walk in perfect synchrony. They would move silently through the streets, freezing if anyone spoke to them. During the Christmas of 1979, when the girls were in their mid-teens, they each received a red leather-bound diary which included a lock and key. Both Jennifer and June began writing in earnest, documenting their day-to-day lives along with thoughts on what their future careers might be. After seeing an advert for a creative writing course, they started to write stories on a typewriter they had borrowed from their older sister and slowly began to dedicate themselves to this new passion. The girls taught themselves grammar and punctuation and ordered a set of encyclopedias. The twins pulled their unemployment benefit, which they put towards the cost of June's first novel, Pepsi Cola Addict. The novel would be published by New Horizons, a self-publishing press based outside of Sussex, and the two girls tried in vain to sell their stories to a number of other publishers. These attempts proved unsuccessful. As their thirst for knowledge began to grow, so did their curiosity with the supernatural. They ordered copies of books titled Telecult Power, Instant Mind Power and Self-Hypnosis. They at first attempted to talk to Marilyn Monroe with little success as they found dragon's blood hard to come by but continued to experiment with voodoo rituals. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. June and Jennifer continued to shut out the outside world and ignored their family. They sent novels, scripts and articles to publishers, though they were all rejected. Disillusioned with their writing endeavours, the sisters' attention slowly turned to boys. After some consideration, they subscribed to pen pal magazines, believing they could find a true relationship in their pages without the embarrassment of meeting face to face. Jennifer placed an ad in one of the magazines which read, Jennifer Gibbons, Fursey Park, Dale Road Estate, Haverford West, Wales. Student age 17 and a half, 5 foot 4 inches in height, enjoying music, reading, poetry and dancing. Requires shy males, 15 to 21. Must be emotional, sensitive, compassionate, romantic, reliable, mature, serious and honest. Any nationality, star sign is Aries. June also created an ad and the girls were optimistic they would eventually find friendship and hopefully their first love. During April 1981, it wasn't the magazines that inspired the girls to leave the house, but it was their crush on a young American boy who had also been at the Eastgate Centre for Special Education. They had found his phone number and would often cold call his home, not saying a word. When the recipient would ask who it was, the twins would eventually start giggling and put down the phone. The boy Lance Kennedy had moved to Wales along with his family as his father George had been stationed at the US Army base in Broadie. Lance had three brothers, Jerry, Wayne and Carl, though sadly their mother had taken her own life with a firearm. The boys were initially free to do as they please while their father was often at work or out dating. It wasn't long before their father George eventually found himself a new wife 
and the boys had a loving stepmother. Jennifer and June found out where Lance lived and unannounced took a taxi to his home in Welsh Hook, a small hamlet around 10 miles from Haverford West, but no one was there. Instead of leaving, the girls decided to enter the home, searching through each room in the house and also help themselves to food in the kitchen. They switched on the TV and as they put their feet up on the sofa, they heard a car approaching up the driveway. The twins fled, but George and his new wife Diane saw them running down the drive, so confronted the girls. Unsurprisingly, the homeowners were both met with a wall of silence, so the Kennedys called for a taxi and the twins were taken home. As George's sons cared little for their belongings, it was hard to tell if anything had been stolen, so the event went unreported to authorities. June and Jennifer were exhilarated by their adventure and decided to again return to the Kennedy household the following day. When they realised no one was home, they squeezed through a small window that was unlocked. The twins spent most of the day searching through the boys' bedrooms for keepsakes and photos and even wrote a poem in Wayne Kennedy's notebook. A few days later they returned and though every door and window was securely fastened, they decided to break in by smashing a window in the conservatory. The girls made a cup of coffee and read through Wayne's diary, learning more about the young man and his brother Lance. Obsessing over the boys, each day they would book a taxi under the name of Mrs. Ford and return to Welsh Hook, entering their home without their knowledge. After a few weeks, the twins finally plucked up the courage to wave to Wayne Kennedy when they spotted him on the street, and after seeing the girls on a number of occasions, he began talking to them. Wayne introduced June and Jennifer to his brothers Jerry and Carl. The twins seldom spoke to their family, but spending time with these young boys was bringing them out of their shell. The girls would arrive at Welsh Hook each day. They would usually spend the day drinking, and this eventually progressed to the frequent use of marijuana. Also, their relationship with Carl, the youngest Kennedy, was blossoming. He took an interest when the twins discussed all things supernatural, and the bond between them and the 14-year-old Carl was moving from platonic to sexual. It seemed of little consequence that Carl was passionately kissing June one minute and then his attention would be turned to Jennifer the next. This culminated in the three taking part in a drink and drug fueled sexual experiment in the woods that would lead to a divide between June and Jennifer. One night Carl attempted to have sex with June in front of her sister, however when this failed he turned his attention to her twin. June watched on as her sister Jennifer lost her virginity to the boy that they were both desperately in love with. A few days after that night, the twins were listening to their radio lying on their bunks when June innocently reached to turn the radio off. Jennifer lunged at her sister, clasping her hands firmly around June's throat. As the two fought, Jennifer then attempted to strangle her sister with the cord from the radio. June let out an almighty shriek and the two fell to the floor. They both cried, aware that all this time together, sharing every waking moment was becoming a burden, but neither could let go. The twins returned to Welsh Hook to see Carl, and the evening they had all spent together was fresh in their minds. Carl was quite insistent that they undertake a repeat performance, however the girls were unwilling this time due to a mixture of a recent cold, lack of drugs and the resentment they felt towards each other. 
Frustrated, Carl told them to piss off, and so June and Jennifer headed home. It was only a week later when the twins accidentally bumped into Carl and his brother Wayne in Haverford West Town Centre. He invited them back to Welsh Hook, and the girls secretly waited in the adjoining barn, finishing off a bottle of brandy and vodka while Carl and his brother had their dinner. As soon as Carl finished eating, he returned to the barn. They stripped off their clothes, and this time, Carl took June's virginity. The twins were besotted with the young Carl Kennedy, but he was slowly losing interest, and things would soon turn violent. During the month of June 1981, Jennifer, June and Carl were watching TV in the Kennedy's home, when completely unprovoked, Carl attacked Jennifer by striking her in the face and then chased her out of the house. June tried to use the phone to call his parents, but when they answered, she froze and was unable to speak. Slamming down the receiver, Carl told her, Why don't you goddamn bitches stop hassling us and get out of here? When the taxi arrived to take them home, Carl barely noticed. As the twins were young and inexperienced, they believed that this sort of behaviour was completely acceptable. They returned to the Kennedys the next day, with Jennifer covering the bruise that marked her face. As the summer passed, the assaults would become more common, interspersed with brief moments of sexual activity. On one occasion, while they sat on a fence overlooking a stream, Cole grabbed a wig that Jennifer liked to wear and attempted to throw it in the water. While his attempt failed due to a passing breeze, it landed in some cow feces. Cole took a box of matches from his pocket and set the wig alight. The event triggered something in the three, and they began discussing tales of robbery and arson. Their three-way romance would soon be coming to an abrupt end, as on July 6, 1981, the twins headed to the Kennedys' home unannounced, as they would often do, but on their way up the driveway, they noticed a removal van. When they finally found the boys, they discovered that their father George had been posted back to Virginia and his family would be coming with him. The girls stayed with the boys for most of the day and asked if they could take some souvenirs. Carl gave the twins a blazer and one of his t-shirts and Wayne offered his anorak but expected a fee for the loss of his jacket. June believed this was a bargain at only £5. Jerry sorted through his belongings and gave the twins an old passport photo and some socks. They wanted to soak up every last moment of their time with the Kennedy boys. However, as their taxi driver beeped his horn, the girls left with a hole in their hearts and nothing to fill it. That is the end of episode 10, but to hear more on the twins' arrest, their time in Broadmoor and their fateful release, please tune in next time. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. To receive early access to ad-free episodes along with other extras, just head to patreon.com forward slash theywalkamongus. If you enjoyed the show and would like to help spread the word, please leave a review on iTunes or your podcast provider as this will help us reach a larger audience. To those of you that have already left some extremely kind reviews, we can't thank you enough. This week's podcast recommendation is True Crime Fan Club. The show is a must for any true crime enthusiast, and host Laney gives us a glimpse into the life and times of some of the most tormented criminal minds. 
you can hear a trailer for the podcast at the end of this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at TWAU underscore podcast or through Instagram and Facebook under They Walk Among Us podcast. Hey guys, it's Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast. If you're a true crime addict like I am, then my podcast is for you. It's a podcast for the ultimate true crime enthusiast, giving you a glimpse into the life and crimes of the most demented minds. You won't want to miss an episode. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Some places take you away. Some bring you together. Marathon does both. Marathon is Florida's family key something for everyone you'll find museums and wildlife refuges wide open beaches miles of warm clear water and the historic seven mile bridge for more about marathon and the latest safety protocols visit flakeys.com slash marathon